deal with just some basic level ideas of it. Uh, but just to sort of review where we've been, we're in the section looking at the goodness of God. And so just to review the questions we've already covered, what is our good God like? God is holy, loving, and perfect in all he is and all he does. He is true, noble, just, pure, and praiseworthy. It is because of God that we even know what good is. And of course, the verse that went with that was Psalm 34, 8. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. So if God is the definition of goodness, then where do, do we get good things? Who gives us all good things? And of course, God is the one who gives us all good things. And we saw in Psalm 84, 11, the Lord God is a sun and a shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. Now, how good is God? And, and the answer here connects the goodness of God with the holiness of God. God is holy. He's perfectly good, perfectly pure, and perfectly committed to his glory. And the holiness of God ensures his goodness because he is outside of all that is created. Holiness, at its very basic point, means to be separate. And the separateness of God ensures that he is able to bring about goodness. He's not affected by the things of this world. And of course, Isaiah 6, 3b, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Now, does God ever sin? I think we can answer this question pretty easily. Does God ever sin? No. Why? Well, God's character and actions are always righteous. It is impossible for him to treat someone in a sinful way. And the psalm for this is Psalm 145, 17. The Lord is righteous in how many of his ways? All his ways. And kind in all his works. And so this shows us and gives us a foundation for trusting in God. Because when you go to men, is there any man apart from one who is righteous in all their works? Is there any man or woman that has walked the face of the earth apart from one that is righteous in all their works? The answer is no. But yet God is, and we see, of course, Christ is the one who is righteous in all those things. So if God never sins, he's always righteous, then is it possible then for God to lie? Does God ever lie? God never lies. He is absolutely trustworthy, and his word is absolute truth. So what we actually see happening here is there is a character attribute of God that he will not lie, and then he shows us that he does not lie by providing his word to us. Titus 1-2, in hope of eternal life, which God who never lies, promised before the world began. So that's caught us up to where we are. And today, we're going to begin with a new question. And then, again, remember this section is on the goodness of God. And so the question that we have today is, does God give to everyone good things they do not deserve? So does God give to everyone good things that they do not deserve? The answer is yes. God is a gracious God who delights in giving good things to everyone. And the psalm we have for this is Psalm 145, 8 through 9. The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding 
in steadfast love. The Lord is good to who? All. And his mercy is over all that he has made. In many ways, as we discuss the fact that God is gracious, God's graciousness is the overflow or the giving of his goodness to mankind. It is, in many ways, the revelation of his goodness to mankind. I want to just just quickly note here the vocabulary of God's goodness in this psalm. It speaks of God being gracious, and that's what we're going to focus on this evening. Uh, Next week, uh, the, the question that goes along with next week focuses on God's mercy and uh, looking forward to having Ben bring the challenge next week. And we'll be looking, he'll be speaking about God's mercy. But God is merciful. So God's gracious, merciful. He's slow to anger. He has steadfast love and he is good. And I, I, it's amazing to me that the scriptures over and over again speak of God being slow to anger in having steadfast love, because those two things describe the very essence of his mercy and his grace. His mercy is that he is slow to anger, and that's so different than us, isn't it? How, how can I say that? Would you say we are slow to anger or we're quick to get angry? I think we're very quick to get angry. And, and angry. So yesterday I had a uh, pastor's prayer meeting out in Monroeville. So first of all, I know I'm crazy for driving from this side of the city to the yonder hills in the east that shall never be born again or spoken of in the south hills. It's just sort of the way it is in Pittsburgh. Um, But not only was I heading out there, and I usually go out there once a month to meet with pastors and pray, but as I'm going, I get an alert on my phone saying there's an accident that's causing, and at that time it said causing a seven-minute delay on your route. And it wanted to reroute me, and so usually I go 376, but it took me in up through uh, um, Oakland and, and down around. And, and I came out, and essentially I, I was able to skip a lot of the backup, but, the, but I still hit the backup right before the Squirrel Hill Tunnels. Why? There was a car, or actually a truck, on fire just outside the Squirrel Hill Tunnels. So you can imagine the traffic nightmare that that happened. And have you ever been in a tunnel and like you're in standstill traffic and you think, is this thing going to cave in on me? Like, am I the only one who's had that? Like, I feel like that every time I'm stuck in a tunnel, like, great, now the thing's going to fall in on me. All right. So we're going through that. and, And then there's this guy in front of me and he is swerving in the tunnel. He's swerving back and forth. I'm like, what is this guy doing? I just and I just was so angry. And was that really an important thing? We are so quick to get angry. And God is the exact opposite of that. He is slow to anger. And then he is a God who provides steadfast love. This is love that does not just simply go with the flow when things are going good. This is love that endures even when we mistreat him. And so again, just to look at that, at that passage... The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. The Lord is good to all, and his mercy is over all that he made. So we're going to focus this evening on God's grace. Um, Now, the Hebrew word that's used in the verse that we're looking at uh, this evening, that term in the Hebrew is used only as an attribute of God. 
So this term is only ever applied to God. And the point that's being made there is only God can exhibit grace, at least in the sense in which he provides that grace. Now, we're called to be gracious ourselves, but in that we are seeking to model the example of grace, which is God himself, who is the source of all grace. Now, what does grace mean? And I think we would you know, probably throw out the, the standard answer that you probably heard in churches all the time, unmerited favor, right? You've heard that term used before. But that, and that is true. That's, that's a, I think, a good way to describe grace. But at its very basic idea, it speaks of the freedom of giving. And really, grace speaks of freedom. Um, when we understand who God is, we understand that God is a God who is absolutely free. What we mean by this is that he is not bound to act in any way, shape, or form from an outside influence. Now, he is bound to act according to his character and nature. And there would be people who would object to that saying, well, then you're saying that God does have to, he is bound by something. But that is the very essence of what a person is. A person is bound to their nature. So if you don't have a nature, you're just a blob, right? So God's not a blob. He's a person. And that person has attributes. And he acts in accordance with those attributes. But so as he acts in accordance with those attributes, he is not bound to act because of any outside influence on him. He is fully and completely free. In fact, if we want to talk about this from a philosophical standpoint, he is the only truly free being in the universe or in existence. God has absolute and complete freedom. Now, why does this focus on grace? Because there is nothing that can be done to elicit acts of grace. So, Essentially, God is fully and completely free to give grace as he sees fit. He's not bound because of something in us to give us grace. And in fact, if God were bound because we did something or we followed some way of thinking or we performed some act, and that would then mean that God would have to give us grace, then guess what that then suddenly makes that not? Grace. And this is what Paul says in Romans eleven six. So too at the present time there is a remnant chosen by what? Grace. Now here he's speaking of the fact that God has not forsaken the promises he's made to Israel. And that even though most of Israel has rebelled against him, God always kept a remnant that was true to him. How And so that remnant that was true to him, that he kept that way, he would continue to keep the promises he made to Abraham through that remnant. He's doing that. Those people are doing those things, not because he's beholden to them, but because of his pure grace. And notice what he says. If it is by grace, then what can it not be by? Works. If it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. If God gives us grace because we do something, then what does that mean it no longer is? Grace. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. So when we talk about grace, I think we miss this point. 
and when we focus on the freedom of God. God is free in his giving of his grace. He's not beholden to give anybody grace. There's nothing that we do to elicit that grace. And so again, the Hebrew term is only used as an attribute of God. It implies a freedom of giving, and there is nothing that can be done to elicit acts of grace. So what is grace? How, what would be a good way for us to define it? And so I've looked to much more wise, wiser men than I to provide some definitions of grace. And so we'll start with uh, John MacArthur. All right? John MacArthur, I think he's a pretty reliable source for, for um, theological definitions. Grace, MacArthur defines as the free, so notice the emphasis on freedom, and benevolent, so it's a good thing, the free and benevolent influence of the holy God operating sovereignly in the lives of undeserving sinners. So some major points that, that MacArthur brings out. It's freedom and goodness. God is free to be good. He does this by drawing on his sovereignty, so he has the right to do it, and then he gives this grace to those who are undeserving of that grace. I think this is a, a good definition that MacArthur gives us here. But I also like to look at uh, another theologian, Wayne Grudem. Uh, Dr. Grudem is someone that we have interacted with here in our systematic theology class, and uh, I thought this was a really good, concise statement. I like MacArthur's statement, but it's a little wordy, isn't it? You know, and, that, and theologians have a, have, the, have a difficulty with that. I obviously have a difficulty with that because my sermons go on and on and on and never seem to end, all right? But what, uh, what Grudem does is he says, grace is God's goodness toward those who deserve only punishment. I think that's a really, really good definition of grace. God's goodness towards those who deserve only punishment. But even more so, um, Sinclair Ferguson, we've had him do just recently one of the Puritan uh, studies, and he explained, um, does anyone remember who he, who he talked about? Nobody? Ten trillion Sunday school bonus points. See if I put the bonus points out there, if that jogged your mind. I believe he was the one who talked about, huh? No. Haken was, huh? No, it wasn't love. I believe it was John Owen. Or maybe I'm wrong. Now I'm, now I'm beginning to doubt myself. Anyways, yeah, you've got the book. <laughs> I, think it was, I think it was John Owen. Um, so, uh, but Sinclair Ferguson makes this statement about grace, and, and I really like it. Jesus Christ is God's grace. Was it Owen? Yes. I'm st still working up here. So, Jesus Christ is God's grace. Now, there's an interview he has um, on Ligonier, Ligonier's website where someone is asking him, what is grace? And he, he begins by saying something sort of shocking. He's like, I don't like to think of grace as a thing that exists. And you're like, what, are you, what do you mean you don't think of it as a thing that exists? Rather, grace is a person. He says this. Um, he says, when the New Testament speaks about the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, 
It is not thinking primarily about something that is given to us, but someone who is given to us. The grace is in Christ. The grace of Christ is in Christ. And this is why the gospel invitation is not come and receive grace. Rather, the gospel invitation is come and receive the Lord Jesus Christ. And I think this is an excellent statement of what grace truly is. Because what is the greatest evidence of God's goodness? What is the greatest gift that he has given to undeserving sinners? It is his son. And so grace ultimately finds its ultimate expression in Jesus Christ. Now, we've already said that God's grace is given to all. But is God's grace given the same way or to the same end as all, for all? Does everyone get the same grace? No. And so that's why we're going to talk a little bit about the types of grace that we see described in Scripture. Now, again, in all the definitions we looked at, grace is goodness given to those who do not deserve that goodness. So who then are the recipients of grace? Does everyone receive the same grace? So let me ask this in two questions. Does everyone receive grace? Everyone. In general, does everyone receive grace? Yes. And if we're defining grace as God's goodness given to those who do not deserve that goodness, is God good to all? Yes. So God is gracious to all. Everyone experiences the goodness of God. Everyone. No matter whether you are a believer or an unbeliever, our God is good to everyone. However, only the redeemed experience the saving goodness of God. So God gives goodness in general to mankind, or he gives a a grace that is held by everyone in common, but then there's also a particular or a special grace that he gives that brings about salvation. And so that's why theologians have typically divided these two types of grace into two different categories. And the first is common grace, and the second is saving grace. Again, common grace is the grace that is held by ev- that everyone holds in common. So it's not a commentary on the type of grace, rather it's a commentary on who gets the grace. Everyone in common gets a level of God's grace. But God gives saving grace only to his people. So let's talk a little bit about common grace. Um, What is common grace? Give me an example of common grace. Reigns on the just and the unjust, okay? Any other thoughts about what common grace would be? All right, he feeds us. The sun, okay. Any other thoughts? Think a little abstractly about this. How else is God... So think of it from the idea of goodness. How else is God good to all of humanity? Okay, gives us life. Richard? Okay, 
So he, he places us on earth. He, um, he gives us and reveals um, that repentance and faith is necessary. Um, now, the level at which that's revealed, it is revealed in one sense to all, but it is only revealed effectively to some. And that's where there's a little bit of an overlap between the common grace and the saving grace, because only some come to true faith in God, even though he's revealed what's necessary to all, all of humanity. So, again, common grace can be defined as God's goodness to all that he has created. It's seen in, first of all, God's just good supervision of his creation. So I'm going to look at it from this perspective. Common grace is not just given to people. It's given to this entire universe. God is good to his creation. We see this in Matthew 6, 26 through 29. Jesus, encouraging his disciples to not worry, tells them, look at the birds of the air. All right? What do the birds of the air not do? Has anyone ever seen a bird planting a garden? And if you have, let's go to the doctor right now, okay? Or show me that bird. I want to meet that bird. All right? We don't see birds planting gardens. We don't see them harvesting from those gardens. We don't see them gathering what they've harvested into uh, barns to store up for um, the winter. And yet, your heavenly Father, what does He do? Feeds them. He's good to the birds. Now, you know, I don't think we need to, we can't be lost on this fact that God is good to His creation. He provides for the birds. And then Jesus' conclusion is that, aren't you of more value than birds? And so which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to the span of his life? And why you're anxious about clothing? And then he gives us this answer. He says, consider the lilies of the field. They neither toil nor spin. Um, yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. So why, why are tulips beautiful? Because of God's grace. And, and you can, there's actually levels in which that goodness of God is shown. The, the lilies of the field are beautiful because of God's grace. And then the fact that we're able to perceive that beauty, where does that come from? God's grace. The fact that I'm able to observe God's goodness in the beauty of creation is an act of His grace given to us. So again, common grace is seen in God's good supervision of his creation. And there's a lot that goes into that that we don't necessarily think about. So, for instance, I was uh, speaking at uh, Vanadium Woods yesterday, and I was talking about um, God's goodness and his grace to us, and I was describing how God shows grace in ways that we don't necessarily typically think of. Um, So why do plants grow? What, let's give a scientific explanation. Why do plants grow? What do, they, what do they do with their leaves? Photosynthesis, all right? Which photosynthesis takes the light of the sun and from some sort of scientific magic, I don't understand how it all works, but I know that I'm trying to remember like eighth grade science or whatever, but it's, stuff happens. And they take the, the light of the sun and they turn it into food and energy for the plants. Um, now, we have a scientific explanation for 
what, what's happening there. But what, brings, what brought about that process? Who invented that process? God did. Who continues to maintain that process? God does. And that's an evidence of his goodness to the plants. Um, we can think of it this way. Why, why aren't we... You realize that the earth is spinning really, really fast. And why don't we just spin right off into, into outer space? I mean, some of us maybe already feel like we're in outer space. But, like, why don't we spin off into outer space? What, what principle, what scientific principle, keeps us on this big earth? Gravity, all right? Who invented gravity? God did. And so... What, what we need to recognize is that the goodness of God is seen in these simple things in creation that we often take for granted. But we also see that common grace is seen in God's kindness to rebellious men. God is good even to those who fight against him. He provides blessings for all humanity. Look at what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5. You have heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. All right? That was a commonplace teaching in the first century in Judaism. Um, do you think it's still taught today? Love your neighbor, hate your enemy? I, I think so. But what does Jesus say? He says, Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Now, why? What is it about blessing those who curse us that Jesus draws upon for us to imitate? And notice what he says. So that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. Because he's the one who makes the sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. Now, we oftentimes will run and we'll say, common grace, rain on the just, or on the evil and the good, just rain on the just and the unjust. But do you understand the point that Jesus is making here? He's calling us to give grace to others because God is gracious to those who turn against him. And so he is a God who provides his blessings for all creation. God, and this is remarkable, God gives breath in the lungs of men who breathe out curses towards him. God provides the ability for the brains of people who will use those brains to fight against his kingdom. He's the one who sustains the activity of their brains. Have you ever, I mean, have you ever thought about this? That is God being good to people who are actively fighting against him. But not only is he good in maintaining them, he's also good in revealing himself in creation. We know Romans chapter 1 very well that that. God's power, his eternal power, his divine nature is clearly perceived in the things in this world. But actually, in Acts, we see some other things that are brought out. Paul writes, or no, I'm sorry, this is Peter. Peter says, in past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways. 
All right, so he allowed nations to rebel against him, yet he didn't just leave them without a witness. For he did what? Good. By giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Now, Peter here is speaking specifically of nations that are fighting against God. And God is so good that not only did he give them rains, not only did he give them fruitful seasons, but he actually satisfied their hearts, gave them food and gave them gladness. To people who have turned away from the fountain of all joy, yet God in his goodness, in his gracious goodness, gives them gladness. Paul, when he is on uh, Mars Hill, speaks of this reality as he's witnessing to those there. When, again, there's all these altars to these gods and there's the unknown God. And Paul is declaring that unknown God. And he says, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by hand, nor is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and what? Everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet, he's actually not far from each one of us. For, and then Paul here does not quote Scripture. He doesn't go to the Old Testament. You know who he's quoting? Greek poets. In him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring." Do you see the goodness of God that's given that he reveals? Not not only does he care for mankind, but he reveals himself to mankind in creation. Not only does he reveal himself in creation, not only does he provide blessings for humanity, but he actively pursues justice. How is this a indication of God's grace? Um, There's a disorder. I don't know what it's called. But there's a disorder that children, can, children sometimes are born with where their body does not process pain. And that's a very dangerous condition to have because a child will see a hot pan and they'll go up and grab the pan and they'll hold on to it because they don't feel any pain. And what does that pan do? It damages them. God is good in bringing justice for sin. We see this in Romans 1.18. For the wrath of God is revealed against heaven, against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. And the point that Paul is making is it is evident that it is evident that to everyone that God's wrath is on this world. How can we say that? This world is messed up. Isn't it? It's messed up beyond all recognition of what God initially intended it to be. Now, we could go back to Genesis 3, and we could see that Adam and Eve went ahead and ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and and sin came into the world, and then we could see God not cursing them. 
We could, we could pretend, well, it wasn't that big a deal. They slipped up. Give them another chance, right? I mean, don't we give other people chances? Why can't God give Adam and Eve another chance? But God is actually showing grace in cursing the ground. Because it's going to be a testimony to all of humanity that something is terribly wrong. That sin has entered the world and corrupted this world. And so the pain that we face in this life is actually a gracious gift of God to show us that something's wrong. If he didn't do that, if he just allowed us to walk through life and not experience these things, we would just dance down the pathway that leads to destruction. Because can sin abide in God's presence? No. So God's common grace is seen in his pursuit of justice. He displays it in the curse. We also see this displayed in the fact that man has a conscience. The, the atheist has no rational explanation for a moral compass in mankind. If God doesn't exist, then why does it matter if I follow any kind of moral law? Now, they would have arguments, and, and I'm not saying that atheists can't be moral people. My point is that the fact that they are moral people shows them that God exists. It is an evidence of God's grace that we think that things are wrong. And of course, ultimately, we see that displayed in Jesus Christ. The cross is universally looked at as a miscarriage of God's or a miscarriage of justice, not God's justice, a miscarriage of human justice. Jesus was innocent. It was proclaimed over and over again. The witnesses couldn't agree before the, uh, before the Jewish leaders. Pilate himself came out and said, this man is innocent, he's done no wrong. And not only was Jesus innocent from that perspective, but we know he was tempted in all points like as we are, yet without sin. And yet God uses this, the cross, paradoxically, to both demonstrate the sinfulness of men. In fact, that's what Peter says. You, with your unlawful hands, unlawfully killed Christ, but also uses it to demonstrate the heinousness of sin. The cross and the horrors of the crucifixion are only a drop in the bucket to the wrath of God that Christ faced for his people. And so God, in making this an open display for all the world to see, is giving common grace to all mankind. But then there is saving grace. And we don't have time, because <laughs> I have like a lot more to go through. Um, saving grace, just, just quickly, well, no, we won't go there. <laughs> it's just not going to happen. It's not going to happen. Um, so we'll, we'll let Ben come in and talk about mercy next week, and then we'll have Puritan study, and then we'll come back again and hit on saving grace. Because it's important for us to cover and to discuss the differences between saving grace and common grace. Any questions about common grace? No? All right, let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you, Lord, for your goodness to all humanity. 
And Father, we thank you that you provide a testimony in creation. You provide a testimony in our own hearts. You provide a testimony by being a just and good God. And Lord, may we give thanks to you for the grace, the common grace that you give to all humanity. But Lord, even more so, may we give thanks as your people that we not only experience that common grace, but in knowing your saving grace in Jesus Christ, we are able to truly appreciate and give thanks with gratitude for your common grace. Lord, may we never take it for granted. And Father, may we seek to glorify you with all that we are. We pray all this in Christ's name, pleading his blood. Amen. We didn't even get to 1 Corinthians.